0: Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. is November 1st, year of our Lord 2020. A year that just can't end soon enough. (laughs) Being November 1st on the church calendar, the traditional church calendar, that makes today All Saints Day. Over the course of the year, The church has designated particular days and has dedicated those days to particular saints, but on November 1st, all saints. The old English expression would be All Hallowed's Day. November 1st today is All Hallowed's Day, which is why yesterday, at evening, it was All Hallowed's Even. That's where we get the word... Halloween from. The Celtic version of even is to drop the V and add a little apostrophe so it becomes een. And so hallowed een is where we get the idea of Halloween. According to ancient Celtic tradition, on the All Hallowed's Eve, the demons and goblins and ghouls were free to go out cause all sorts of havoc, and trick people just prior to the holiest day of the year. I mean, All Saints Day, holiest day of the year on the church calendar. Therefore, hell gets all upset the evening before, and the demons go out and trick people. And so, it became a tradition that you would take a hollowed-out gourd, like a pumpkin, put a light inside it, put a candle inside it, and then put that on the front of your house so that when the demons passed by your house, they would think your house already had a demon, and therefore they would pass by your house as they went out looking for people to torture and trick. These days were so much more intelligent... These days, we don't hold to those old superstitions. Instead, we just dress our children up like little ghouls and goblins, and we send them out to tell the neighbors that they have to treat them or they will trick them. But on the Reformed church calendar, yesterday was Reformation Day because it was October 31st, 1517 that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, because he was trying to begin a debate, a conversation about the legitimacy of the Catholic church selling indulgences. And that was the standard way of doing it. If you wanted to begin a conversation or a debate among the students about various theological ideas, you would post your theses to the church door, and then people would gather, read it, and begin the conversation. So we mark that as the traditional beginning of the Reformation. And so that each year is Reformation Day. So this weekend really has something for everybody. If you're part of the Catholic tradition, then today is All Saints Day. If you're part of the Reformed tradition, then yesterday was Reformation Day. And if you're just a heathen, happy Halloween. (laughs) So really something for everyone. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 we have looked at this passage a couple of times in the preceding weeks I think we have technically finished the Be the Christian series at this point I mean if we're talking about the benefits of Christianity it doesn't get much better than being invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb so that's kind of the pinnacle and so we're going to continue now I told you that after we finished the Be the Christian series that I was going to delve into a bit of eschatology (coughs) while we are still doing topical messages on Sundays. And then eventually when we finish this, we will go on to our study of Ephesians and Colossians. But this morning, we are going to get eschatological on you. So if that doesn't interest you, you already know that ahead of time. There's a door there. There's a door there. Feel free. We won't hold it against you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at the very beginning of the chapter, when we were talking about one of the benefits of Christianity being that we are removed from the wrath of God we discussed what the wrath of God looks like. And we talked about the day of the Lord language. And then also, a couple weeks later, we talked about the fact that there is a catching away explained in this chapter and in various places in the Bible, and that God has a long, rich history of catching people away, taking them up off the planet. And then as we talked about the wedding between the bridegroom Christ and his church, we saw yet again that language of the bridegroom coming to get his church, and so two of the three components of what we're seeing here in chapter 2 of 2 Thess- of Thessalonians, two of those three components we've actually kind of covered, we've talked about the catching away of the church, and we've talked about the day of the Lord, but there is a third component here. And we just kind of read by it. Today we're going to talk about it. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, "...to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the departure comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship, So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders and with the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so that they would be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence. The King James Version says a strong delusion so that they might believe the lie or believe what is false in order that they all may be judged. The King James says so they'll all be condemned who did not believe the truth. But who took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this that He called you through our gospel that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm. And hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and every good word. The missing element that we have not talked about who Paul talks about at length in this chapter, is this lawless one who is going to be revealed, whom the Lord himself is going to slay with the breath of his mouth. The one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. That one who is being held back, who cannot be revealed until the restrainer is removed the one who has to be revealed before the day of the Lord can come. That personage has several different nicknames in scripture. We're going to see him called the beast. We're going to see him called the little horn, but the most common, most popular name for him is Antichrist. That's what we're going to talk about this morning and probably next week. I'm going to see if we can clear up some of the misconceptions and confusions about the Antichrist. Who he is, how he is predicted in scripture, and what it is that he is going to do. And we know for certain from what we just read that he has not yet appeared on the stage of history by the single simple fact... That he is destroyed by Christ returning and destroying him with the breath of his mouth. That we have not seen yet. So this beast, this little horn, that particular horrible satanic character has yet to appear on the stage of history. And yet when Paul describes him here in 2 Thessalonians 2, he also says to the saints there at Thessalonica, Don't you remember I told you all this when I was with you? In other words, Paul was not afraid to talk about eschatology, and he was willing to talk about the little horn, the beast, the antichrist, the evil one to come. Far too often in my history, I have seen that churches are sometimes reticent to talk about him, even though you're going to see that he looms large in the Bible. But churches are reticent to talk about him for various different reasons, usually because it takes a little bit of time and study, and sometimes because it's not exciting, happy, pleasurable information to read about, and yet again, it is firmly biblical, and my job is to teach you the Bible. And I have already shown you the Bible clearly teaches a catching away of the church, prefigured in the bride and groom language, but also plainly stated here in Second Thessalonians, there's going to be a catching away of the church and there's going to be a time of judgment and the wrath of God called the day of the Lord. And between those two events, there is this man of lawlessness, this man of sin who has to be revealed and go into pernition and stand in the temple showing himself that he is God. Now, we have made reference to him on Wednesday nights as we've been reading through the book of Isaiah, and we just saw where Isaiah spoke right past the king of Babylon in order to speak to the devil that drove him. And there were allusions to this ultimate antichrist to come, but I think it's necessary that we actually bear down and understand who this character is. Now, when I say who this character is, I am not planning to name names. I am not intending to tell you who it is. I'm intending to tell you what is said about him in the Bible so that you would recognize that that spirit already exists in the world, as Paul says, but the ultimate embodiment of that spirit has not appeared yet on the planet. When I was a Lutheran kid, when I was in high school, I talked to the pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Livonia, Michigan. I asked him one day, who is the Antichrist? What does the Bible say about the Antichrist? Because our particular little Lutheran church Didn't do a lot of in-depth Bible study. Most sermons were about 15, 20 minutes long. And really, you could set your watch according to the liturgy. And so I asked him in the hallway, who is the Antichrist? He said, come with me. He took me in his office, and he handed me a Bible dictionary and said, this is a quote that I've never forgotten. It's in there, but it's not important. Paul just got done saying, don't you remember that I told you about these things when I was with you? And he talks about this man of sin, this man of lawlessness, and he describes him at some great length. Apparently, Paul thought it was quite important. And as we're going to see this morning and next week, this character looms large. Now, when it comes to the Antichrist, in fact, when it comes to all eschatology, there are really three prominent views. I don't plan to teach you three views because I don't believe that the Bible teaches three views. I plan to teach you what the Bible says and whatever view arises from that, then fair enough. But... I believe that the Antichrist is a real, actual, genuine human being who is going to inhabit planet Earth at some point, and who is going to establish a kingdom over there in the Middle East, and he is going to attack Jerusalem, and then he is going to be destroyed when Christ returns. Why do I believe that? Because it's exactly what the Bible says, Old Testament and New. We just read the New Testament telling of it. Most of this morning we are going to be in the book of Daniel, and Daniel is going to identify the characteristics of this one very precisely. It astounds me that there is so much confusion about this character, considering how precise Daniel actually is about him. Whenever the subject of the antichrist comes up people will quote from 1 John so turn to 1 John for just a moment so that you can see this and then we'll start by seeing if we can explain the language people will quote 1 John 4:3 when you use the word antichrist if you use the word in reference to a future person a future demonically inspired character on planet earth, they will say to you, no, John actually uses the word antichrist in a more general way. He is not an actual individual. He is just a spirit that is on the planet, and that's the way John uses the language. In thinking about how to explain the difference here, I think the best way to explain it to you is to understand the word antichrist With a capital A so that it becomes a name, Antichrist. When you talk about a character in the future and you say Antichrist, think of it as with a capital A, Antichrist. But then John uses the word Antichrist with a small a, and he is describing a spirit on the world that is actually against Christ. And that's what the word anti means. You should all be familiar with that prefix anti because you see it every day in the news. Anti-fascist, antifa. So anti means against or replacing, substituting something else in the place of Christ for the purpose of drawing you away from Christ. And so there is that character in the world. It was there when John was writing, it is still alive in the world. There is a very definite anti-Christian, anti-Christ characteristic on the planet even to this very moment. That is why there is anti-Christian sentiment and regulation and there are churches on the planet at this very moment that are having trouble being open because the government is trying to suppress the word of God and hold it down in unrighteousness. That characteristic of anti-Christian feeling is the same in John's day as it is in our day. And so John would write this, 1 John 4:3. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Briefly, I need to tell you, John is writing against Gnosticism here. Gnosticism ran rampant in first century Middle Eastern thinking and philosophy. The idea that John is writing against, the particular notion of Gnosticism that he's writing against here is that Gnosticism believed that everything fleshly was inherently bad, evil, wrong. Everything spiritual was inherently good only spiritual things could be genuinely right, holy, good flesh cannot be everything about flesh is evil therefore, they postulated Jesus could not have come in the flesh because flesh is evil and if he's the son of God he can't be evil so they said that Jesus was not an actual flesh and blood person he was actually A phantasm, a spirit who looked like flesh, but he was not actually flesh. That's what John's writing against here. And he says, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of anti or against Christ. So he is defining what the spirit is like any philosophy, any thinking that says Jesus is not flesh and blood because flesh and blood is evil, well then that is to deny the humanity of Jesus and so that is not of God. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is anti-Christ, anti-Christian. This is that spirit of antichrist whereof you heard that that spirit should come And even now, it is already in the world. That's really interesting. And you've heard that he's going to come. Well, where would you have heard that? You've heard that in the Old Testament. You've heard that in the scripture. You've heard that in the book of Daniel. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to understand the background that John was working from so that John could say, you've already heard that that Antichrist embodiment that antichrist spirit is coming but then he says and even now it's already in the world and of course i would argue it's still in the world to this very moment if you have any friends family loved ones if you know any neighbors who are adamantly against christianity john would say that is the spirit of anti-christ understand it so small a It's a descriptor of a characteristic small a, but the characteristic, the spirit, the nature of Antichrist is already in the world. If you look at 2 John, just turn forward a page and you'll be in 2 John. In the very first chapter, he says the very same thing. John writes three small epistles. In two of them, he takes the time to define what he means by anti-Christ. 2 John 1st chapter, verse 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world. I think we would all agree with that. There are many liars. There are many people making up things about Christ and about Christianity. There are many people who are working very hard to deceive you away from your faith in Jesus Christ. Many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a liar, a deceiver, and an antichrist. That is also against, that is positioned 180 degrees against everything that Christ is and everything that Christianity is about. So John does say, admittedly, no question, I'm not arguing against it. He does use the word antichrist in order to describe a characteristic, a spirit, an attitude that is in the world. The world itself is anti-Christ. Now we have taken that word and just popularized it in order to identify this person who is to come, and that confused the issue. As soon as we say, well, John uses it as a descriptor of a nature and a character, And then you try to apply that name to the one who's coming, that's where the confusion comes from because people who don't want to admit that there is this personality coming will say, well, no, that's not how John uses the word. But the Bible does talk extensively about a character to come, a personality to come, and Paul himself says that he is a man of lawlessness and a man of sin. And a man who is inspired by Satan himself. And yet he agrees with John in verse 7 by saying, for that mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Paul says it's a mystery of lawlessness that's already at work in the world leading to this character. The embodiment of that lawlessness. John just simply says it is an anti-Christian characteristic that is leading to the one to come that all makes sense? Yes. The Bible does not contradict itself. And so there's no language in the Bible that you can use in order to counteract other language that the Bible uses. Biblical language rightly understood all corresponds with itself. That is all introduction. Turn to the book of Daniel. We are going to start in the book of Daniel, chapter 2. You know the backstory here. King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream, and the dream has upset him, but he can't remember the dream. He just remembers that he woke up, and he was really upset. And so he calls all his magicians and his soothsayers, and he says, I need the interpretation of the dream. I need to understand this dream that has upset me so much, but I can't remember it. So what I need you to do in order for me to know that your interpretation is correct is you also have to tell me what the dream was. And they all say, that's ridiculous. We can't do that they say it's an impossible thing that the king requests of us we can't tell you what your dream was and what the interpretation was when they go to Daniel tell him that that's the king's request and Daniel says I'll go to God I'll pray tell the king to hang on I'll give him the interpretation Daniel goes to king Nebuchadnezzar and he explains that the dream was that he saw a statue and the statue had a head of gold And that he had arms and sides of silver, that his belly and hip area was of brass. He had legs of iron, and then he had ten toes that were mingled iron and clay. And the king says, by golly, that's it. Except that he said, by golly, in the Chaldee language. He said, that's my dream. Now I know that you can interpret my dream. That's where we're starting in Daniel 2, verse 34. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. Who is the stone cut out without hands? That can only be Christ the Lord who refers to himself constantly as the rock, as the stone, as the stone that the builders rejected. He loves that analogy of himself, and it is used continually throughout the Bible. Daniel says, okay, so you saw this great statue, but then you continued looking at that statue, which I'm going to tell you now represents the successive kingdoms of the Middle East. Daniel's going to tell us that. I'm not making anything up. And then a stone comes down out of heaven cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it crushed them. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed, all of them at the same time, and they became chaff like the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's not really difficult to understand or interpret. Jesus is going to crush the kingdoms of this world. It's one of the names that is written on his thigh and on his vesture. He is called King of Kings. Lord of lords. That means whatever kings exist on the planet, whatever lords there are on the planet, he is king and lord over them. And so when he comes and sets up his kingdom, all other kingdoms are crushed and destroyed. But there's also a hint here that he's going to come back. That stone is going to come down from heaven during the time of the ten-toed kingdom and I will tell you now in advance that that ten-toed kingdom has not yet been historically identified. It hasn't happened yet. But when it does, Christ is going to return, crush the kingdoms of this planet, and establish his kingdom as the king of kings. Okay, so now fortunately for us, even though I just... Sort of interpreted that for you? Daniel is now going to interpret it for us. So you'll see that my interpretation is right in league with what Daniel has already interpreted for us. Daniel 2, starting at verse 37. You, O king, are a king of kings. In other words, you rule over other kingdoms. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory... And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and he has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Is there any question about what the interpretation of the head of gold is? Daniel says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, as king over the Babylonian kingdom, you are the head of gold. After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, that's why it goes from gold down to silver, and then a third kingdom of bronze, which will will also rule over all the earth, and then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron... That kingdom will break things in pieces and will crush and break all these things into pieces. In that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have the toughness of the iron. But inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and some of it will be weak or brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not adhere or combine with pottery. In the days of those kings... Which kings? In the days of those kings. How many kings are we talking about here? Ten. Ten. During the days of those ten kings and those ten kingdoms which are a loose confederacy Some are strong, some are not, but they don't really adhere together. It is in the days of those kings that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all those kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Okay, so what has Daniel told us? He said, here are the kingdoms that are going to rise up here in the Middle East and specifically the lineage of kingdoms that he describes are all the kingdoms that ever oppressed God's people, Israel. Right straight down the line. That's why he didn't mention Japan. He didn't mention South America. He didn't mention the Incas. He didn't. He's only concerned at this point with the succession of kingdoms that hold sway over Jerusalem. And so there is going to be the kingdom of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Then there's the Medo-Persian kingdom. Interesting, by the way, that the Medo-Persian kingdom would have two arms, two sides, two shoulders, because it was the Medes and the Persians. That kingdom had two sides. But it's silver, so it's not as powerful as the gold kingdom, which is kind of the gold standard where kingdoms in the Middle East are concerned. That silver kingdom is then taken over by the bronze kingdom which is Alexander the Great and the Grecian kingdom. I didn't just make that up. Daniel's going to tell us that. And then there's another kingdom with two legs, which we're going to find out is the kingdom of Rome, which then splits into the eastern and western Roman divisions, kingships. Interesting. God is so accurate with this, but then coming out of the Roman kingdom, there is this kingdom that we can't identify historically that is made up of 10 kings, 10 nations, a loose confederacy, and part of the reason that we know that that kingdom has not occurred yet is because Christ has not come back yet and crushed all the kingdoms of the world, but he's going to. That's promised That's guaranteed to us that he's going to do it, but he's going to do it during the time of those ten kingdoms. That is why eschatology fans and prophecy watchers are always looking at the Middle East and just kind of waiting to see confederations of kingdoms. Now, I will tell you, if you're a fan of the Left Behind books, the Left Behind books will tell you that this final little horn character is going to come out of Europe somewhere out of a reconstituted Roman Empire and so they're looking at Europe and the European Union and for a long time as the European Union was growing and people were being added to it there were prophecy watchers all watching the European Union and they were like here it comes here it comes nine kingdoms ten kingdoms here oh it's eleven kingdoms wait thirteen Wait, it's, oh, it's 14 kingdoms now. It's a, and the Bible does not describe the final character as coming out of the European Union. It describes him as coming out of that portion of the Middle East that has always historically ruled over and dominated Jerusalem. Those are the kingdoms that are described here, and those are the kingdoms out of which Daniel is going to tell us that little horn is going to come. So get that left-behind idea out of your head. You know, in fact, just get the whole left-behind thing out of your head. There's very little about that book that I agree with. Time goes by. Nebuchadnezzar dies. Nebuchadnezzar has a son who also has a son. Nebuchadnezzar's son is kind of a lazy, indolent guy. Doesn't spend a lot of time in Babylon itself. So it is his son, Belshazzar, who is actually ruling, and it is in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, that Daniel sees another vision, and that's what we see in Daniel 7, starting right at verse 1. We're going to read 28 verses. Hang with me. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a vision, and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and he related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision at night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming out from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and he had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking. "...until his wings were plucked, and it was lifted up off the ground, and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was lifted up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat." After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn... Possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and his mouth was uttering great boasts. If that sounds familiar, it's because exactly that is what Paul described in 2 Thessalonians 2. Now let's just walk through the details real quickly. The first kingdom that Daniel makes reference to here is a lion with the wings of eagles. The wings were then plucked off. He was lifted up to be a man, and a human mind was given to him. That's Nebuchadnezzar. That's the first king of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel's going to tell us that. Then there was a bear. Really interesting image. A bear lifted up on one side, because that's exactly what happened to the Medo-Persians. Cyrus overwhelmed Darius the Mede, and eventually then... The Persians overwhelmed the Medes so that the Persians became the dominant kingdom between the two of them. A bear lifted up on one side. And he went out to war. He devoured much meat. And then there was a leopard with four wings like a bird. The Grecian Empire and its first king, Alexander the Great. To this very day, if you read Middle Eastern history, you will find historians marveling at the speed and the ferocity with which young Alexander the Great managed to overcome the kingdoms of the Middle East and parts of Europe. It was astounding. He was like a leopard with wings as he flew across the Middle East and Europe. But then there's this dreadful, terrifying Theologians refer to it as the nondescript beast because he's not given an animal. We're not told what animal he's like. We're just told that he's dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and he has ten horns. Horns are a symbol of power, strength, kingdom. But then among the ten horns... There's one smaller horn, one little horn. That's why I have been referring to him by the nickname the little horn so far this morning. There is one little horn that rises up who takes three of them by force, uproots three of the ten, and the others just give him the authority, just give him the power. And then he is like a man. He has the eyes of a man. He has a mouth uttering great boasts, which, as I said, is what Paul describes, He's going to stand in the temple of God showing himself that he is God and he's going to utter these great blasphemies against God. I kept looking, says verse 9, and thrones were set up. These are heavenly thrones you're going to see in context. And the ancient of days, God himself took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool And his throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were like a burning fire. I love the imagery. It's the same imagery that Ezekiel sees, of God riding on a chariot of clouds, with wheels within wheels that are covered in eyes, in his all-omnipotent power and omniscience of everything all at once. His throne was ablaze with flames. And his throne had wheels like a chariot and its wheels were a burning fire and a river of fire was flowing in front of him and coming out from before him and thousands upon thousands were attending him. And then John reaches the point where he says, okay, thousands is not a big enough number. I need a bigger number. He goes with large, uncountable number. It's translated here as myriads. So he's got thousands upon thousands attending him and myriads upon myriads are standing before him and the court sat and the books were opened. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the little horn was speaking. I kept looking until that beast was slain And his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, the lion, the bear, the leopard, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. In other words, they were on the planet and they were ruling and they had their kingships for appointed periods of time according to the time that an absolutely sovereign God gave them. And then an absolutely sovereign God wipes them off the map when he brings judgment to the planet. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven One like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and men of every language would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." Exactly the same as what we saw in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar saw it as a statue and a series of kingdoms, and then Christ returns, abolishes all other kingdoms, and he becomes the king over all kings. During the first year of Belshazzar as king of Babylon, Daniel sees a vision of a series of animals, and he comes to the exact same conclusion. Those kingdoms, those animals existed on the planet for a period of time that God allotted, but they are all going to be wiped away. They are all going to be destroyed when the superior kingdom of Christ himself is set up. You don't need to remember all the explicit details. All you have to know is that in both of those visions, they tell the exact same story, which is, okay, we're in Babylon right now, but we're gonna be defeated by the Medo-Persians. Medo-Persians are going, to be devi- are going to be defeated by the Greeks. They are going to be overcome by Rome and then eventually there's going to be a ten nation loose confederacy and during the time of those kings and that confederacy Christ himself is going to come back and judgment is going to be set up over the whole earth resulting in a kingdom that will never end where all nations, all people groups, all languages come to worship the king of kings and the lord of lords that's the story that Daniel has now told twice he's told it in visions but he's told the exact same story by the way In verse 11, he saw the horn speaking these blasphemous words, these boastful words. And then it's interesting that he sees Christ coming back on clouds of glory because we get into the New Testament and we see Jesus rise up off the planet at the beginning of the book of Acts. He's talking to his apostles, and then he rises up off the planet. He's enveloped by clouds, and he disappears from their sight. And then an angel standing with them says, ye men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus is going to return in the same way as you saw him go. How is that? in clouds of glory so then Jesus in explaining his own return says that he's going to return in clouds of glory Daniel saw it all the way back here that when Jesus comes back he's coming on clouds of glory very consistent imagery all the way along now it is because of the accuracy with which Daniel has predicted Middle Eastern history that the critics of the Bible, especially during the latter part of the 19th century, there was a movement called the higher critics. They really came out of Germany. The German higher critics concluded that because miracles don't happen today, because we're not seeing miraculous things and we're not seeing visions and we're not seeing prophets today, they concluded that because it's not happening now, it never could have happened. And so they concluded that. Big portions of the Bible just simply couldn't be true. And part of their argument was based on Daniel. They said Daniel is so incredibly accurate in explaining Middle Eastern history to the degree. You want to see how explicit this is? You'll notice that the leopard with wings had four heads. Now Daniel's going to get into this in more detail, and we may or may not get to it this morning, But when Alexander the Great died, his posterity did not then become king of Greece. And so his kingdom was divided between his four generals. And it's out of one of those four generals that Daniel says this little horn is coming. So we have some idea of what locale, what geographic area This little horn is supposed to come out of. But Daniel was so specific that people tried to late date Daniel and say that Daniel had to have been written as a forgery after the fact, during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, during the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. Somebody had to have forged this information because nobody could know with this kind of accuracy and detail what was going to happen in the Middle East. And then Jesus walked on the planet and said, according to Daniel the prophet, which means that either Jesus was fooled by a forgery, and if he is God, he would know it was a forgery, and yet he was telling people to go read it and refer to it, and called him Daniel the prophet, and then in our own collective lifetime. The Qumran caves were discovered. And on those Dead Sea Scrolls was writing from Daniel that predates the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and predates what all the scholars were claiming was the proof of it being late dated and written late and being a forgery. Instead, what they found was that the book of Daniel actually predated all that so it couldn't have been forged. God just laying stuff out and going, my word, trust my word, this is what's going to happen, let's keep reading in Daniel 7. Are you feeling more confident in what you're reading now? Yes. I mean, the book of Daniel is just astounding, and it's referred to so often in the New Testament. Clearly, the New Testament authors felt that the book of Daniel was legitimate prophecy of things to come. Let's start in verse 15 of Daniel 7. No, he's going to help interpret it for us. That's going to be great. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by. Apparently, there's an angel standing by, and Daniel decides, I'll check with him. So I began asking him the exact meaning of all this. Well, this is really, really helpful. An angelic interpretation. You don't get better resource than that. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. There's the summary. I summarized it a moment ago for you. I walked through that it was a succession of kingdoms, whether a statue or whether animals, it was a succession of kingdoms that were going to arise in the Middle East who are going to persecute Jerusalem and God's people, and then God's people, God's saints, are going to receive a kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. That's the simple interpretation of the whole thing. But look at verse 19. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, that nondescript beast, which was different from all the others and exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with his feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell. Namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than all his associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Just a specific point here. When Daniel is writing and using the word saints, who is he referring to? Is he talking about the church? No. Nope. no. When he refers to the saints... He's talking about Israelites, the children of God, the Jews. That's who are the saints in this context. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints. Okay, he's going to persecute Jerusalem. And he overpowered them until... The Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So we have just been told very exactly there that it is during the time of this ten-toed loose confederacy nation that Christ is going to return Christ is going to set up his kingdom, the ancient of days is going to come, and judgment is going to be handed out during the days of that kingdom. That is one of the rock solid, if you don't mind the pun, that is one of the rock solid reasons why we know that that nation doesn't exist yet. Hadn't existed in Daniel's time, he wanted to know what it was about didn't exist in the New Testament because Jesus kept saying when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of in the book of Daniel then you that are in Jerusalem flee why? because Daniel says he's going to go conquer the saints in Jerusalem you see this is all tying together Jesus makes reference to the prophet Daniel so that the saints in Jerusalem would know how to react when this all occurs which Jesus cast out into his future And we haven't seen it yet. We've seen Babylon. We've seen Medo Persia. We've seen Greece. We've seen Rome. We haven't seen the ten toed kingdom and Jesus cast it out into the future somewhere. And the reason we know that it hasn't happened yet is because Jesus hasn't come back yet. And the judgment hasn't happened yet. The thrones have not been set. The books have not been opened. And everybody tried out of the things that are written in those books. That hasn't occurred yet. Instead what we have is a world that still has this spirit of anti-Christian in it. A world that is ultimately going to be destroyed when Christ himself sets up his everlasting kingdom. That all nations and people and languages are going to flow to. Wait, Daniel's not done. Verse 23, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Based on that description, can you identify that kingdom? No, you can't. There's been no kingdom yet, a loose confederation of ten nations that has overcome the whole world. That hasn't happened yet. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. And then another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and he will subdue three of those previous kings. He will speak out against the most high and he will wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times. In other words, the set times of God. The feasts of God. And he will seek to make changes to the law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. You're going to see that nomenclature over and over and over again. Both in Daniel and in the book of Revelation. Revelation. Time, times, and half a time is identified as 1,260 days, so it's very specific. It is also identified as 42 months. It couldn't be more specific. It's three and a half years. For three and a half years, now we know exactly how long the kingdoms and the saints are going to be given into the hand of the little horn. For time, times, half a time, for 1,260 days. For 42 months. For three and a half years. But. The court will sit for judgment. And his dominion will be taken away. Annihilated. And destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty. The dominion. And the greatness of all nations under the whole kingdom will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions of earth will serve and obey him. Has that happened yet? No. No. There's no way to say that's happened yet. Okay, my evidence for the fact that it has to happen is simply this. Did Babylon happen? Yes. Did Medo-Persia happen?
1: Yes.
0: Did Greece happen? Yes. Did Rome happen? Yes. Did they happen in the exact sequence that Daniel said in advance they were going to happen? Yes. Well then you have no basis on which you can say that this last ten toed kingdom is not going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. But it's coming. So here are the basic details and then we'll call it a morning and we'll pick up here next week. There are kingdoms including Babylon. That's Nebuchadnezzar. He's the head of gold. He's the lion with wings. Then comes Medo-Persia. That's the silver kingdom in the statue. That's the bear that is lifted up on one side. Greece is the brass belly and sides. Greece is the leopard with wings and their first king, Alexander the Great. And then the image of the animals just leaps right over Rome, probably because Rome never had a king like a Nebuchadnezzar or like a Cyrus, both of whom are mentioned in the Bible. They didn't have an Alexander the Great. Instead, they had a series of Caesars, but they didn't have that prominent king, So the vision leaps right to this nondescript beast with ten horns or ten toes. And it's in the time of those kings that one is going to arise who's going to speak out against the great God the way that Paul describes let no one in any way deceive you for the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasia, the departure come first and then that man of lawlessness is going to be revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Don't you remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what's restraining him right now, So that in his time he'll be revealed for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is that one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. The good news for us if you've been paying attention to what we've been learning for the last couple of months before this wicked one can be revealed the restrainer has to be taken away which is parallel to Paul saying The departure has to happen first, all of which he says in the context of our Lord's appearance and our gathering together to him. Everything you've heard this morning is what is coming for planet earth. This is what the Bible has described for planet earth and it hasn't missed yet. So it's coming and we won't be here. That's your amen moment right there because God, who is faithful long before he pours out judgment and wrath on all the kingdoms of the earth, is going to remove his church so that we, as we saw last week, are going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb while this is taking place on earth. See how it all fits together? The Bible creates a very consistent eschatology, and I don't know why there's any confusion about it questions all right then steve is going to come up and lead you in hymn number 82 we are going to sing god be with you till we meet again hopefully that will be tuesday night men's meeting wednesday night will be in the book of isaiah and next sunday we will continue looking at this beast character steve